Welcome to the Energy Intelligence Corporate Strategy Podcast Series, a podcast focused on competitor intelligence in the oil and gas and broader energy space. My name is Luke Johnson. I report for the corporate team here in Houston. And joining us on the phone today from New York is Abhi Rajendran, the Director of Energy Intelligence's Research and Advisory Unit. How's it going, Abhi? Going good. Thanks for having me. And we've also got our Houston Bureau Chief and Head of the North American Corporate Team, Noah Brenner. Hey, Noah. Hey, Luke. Well, we try not to date these podcasts too much, but suffice to say that we are recording this right here at the end of 2019, which means it's time to look ahead to the new year and actually a whole new decade in just a couple weeks. And Abby has just published his new outlook for 2020 in the oil and gas sector. So we're going to dig into that a bit and discuss some of the high level takeaways and then try to look at how some specific companies fit into the dynamics that we see shaping the sector as things progress in, in the next year or so. So Abby, um, I guess the place we need to start with any discussion about the oil and gas industry is supply and demand and how we see them changing both near term and longer term. And I guess in I guess 2019 was was kind of a year of right sizing our expectations in, in the face of slowing activity, especially in the US, where I think we're really starting to see kind of the limits of, of shale supply growth. And on the other hand, of course, there's reason to believe that demand growth is starting to slow as well. So what do you think are kind of the most important factors affecting the changes in both supply and demand and what are the ramifications of those changes? Yeah, I know it's a, it's a great question and a good place to start the conversation. Um, you know, as we kind of exit this year and, and go into 2020, there's, you know, there's certainly quite a bit of uncertainty on, uh, on both sides of the coin, um, on demand and on supply. Um, and I think this is kind of what has the, uh, the industry uh, somewhat uneasy. And, and, and to your question, Luke, you know, it's both a, you know, a shorter term cyclical question um, and it's also a medium to longer term um, you know, more secular question. Um, so maybe just kind of touching on both of those. Um, I mean, I think as we uh, think about um, 2020 uh, oil markets globally, um, you know, our energy intelligence view calls for about, you know, 1.1 million barrels a day of total demand growth. Um, so it's a slight acceleration from, you know, a year this year where we've had, you know, the weakest demand in, in nearly a decade um, at just 800,000 barrels a day of growth. And so, you know, we still are, you know, hopeful and optimistic for some acceleration, but um, there's still a lot of uncertainty around that um, from a macro perspective, from a trade perspective, um, from some of the key regions that, that drive that growth. Um, so this is, this is certainly an area that the industry is watching closely. Um, and then on the supply side of the ledger, uh, you know, there, there's kind of the, the OPEC and non-OPEC uh, parts of the discussion. Um, Certainly on the non-OPEC side, uh, you know, there are a lot of questions around whether, you know, anywhere close to the levels of, of, of expected growth coming from the U.S. will, will really materialize. Uh, we don't think so. We're much more cautious. Uh, we can kind of dig into some of the details. Um, but, but even on the supply side of the, you know, kind of the, the supply-demand ledger, um, there are quite a few, uh, you know, questions out there for, for the industry to, to really sort of uh, uh, understand. And so this is kind of the the, the up going in uh, to next year uh, on the oil side. 
And what's interesting, we'll dig into it a little bit later. Um, even on the on the gas LNG side of the uh, the the energy space, uh, there are quite a few uncertainties. You know, generally speaking, uh, you know, gas demand growth, LNG demand growth has been fairly robust. Um, but there's a lot of new uh, LNG supply coming to market, and that's really kind of pressured the the the, the balances and the price dynamics for for the global um, LNG space this year. And that's another uncertainty for the industry to kind of grapple with as uh, you know as the the as we turn into uh, the next decade um, and, and and look to the next you know sort of ten years in this industry. Mm. And so, Noah, on a corporate level, uh, there was some discussion this time last year about whether shale producers would continue you know, to grow kind of at all costs or if there would be more of a pullback. Um, it sounds like growth has clearly moderated this year. So barring a, a spike in commodity prices, is it safe to assume that we'll continue to see companies kind of throttle back their growth ambitions in, in 2020? Yes, certainly. I mean, I, I think what we're likely to see is is a continuation. And, and what we have seen, what companies have uh, told the market so far is really a kind of a continuation of, of the second half of 2019, um, where, yes, they're definitely moderating activity, um, sort of reining in some of their, uh, their ambitions for growth. Um, and doing it so that they can can show some sort of free cash flow, hopefully. Um, I mean, again, you know, free cash flow, the importance of free cash flow is, is really only going to continue through 2020. And now, you know, with the latest small run up, really, um, in oil prices or firming of oil prices, you know, I think the outlook for free cash flow for some of these companies has certainly probably improved a little bit, especially if they're able to, uh, to lock in some of this pricing through hedging. Um, but at the same point, really, any type of, of kind of additional or windfall type of cash that's going to be coming in the door, we really don't see that going to toward growth or acceleration of activity really in any way. We would expect that uh, companies are generally going to pay down debt uh, if they do need to do that to meet their debt goals. And and really, most companies do still have uh, some wood to chop on that side of the equation. And then, you know, potentially some opportunistic uh, returns to shareholders. And that might be maybe through, um, you know, through a, a share buyback or I have a hard time seeing a lot of dividend increases while there's still uh, still quite a bit of uncertainty about, around pricing and the macro environment. But uh, you know, really, any cash that's that's out there is going to uh, to go to the balance sheet or to share. Okay, so you mentioned debt, and obviously that's uh, a big looming factor for a lot of companies. I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, you know distressed balance sheets out there, and if oil oil prices do stay kind of range bound in this you know, 55 to $60 WTI price range. Are we going to start to see more bankruptcies in the next year or two? Yeah. I mean, I don't think that it's, it's avoidable. Um, you know, I, I think we definitely will see an uptick in bankruptcies. Will we see as many bankruptcies as, as perhaps some of the, the balance sheet distress might indicate? Probably not. Um, you know, companies are still finding, um, some ways to to come to terms with lenders, whether that's to uh, amend their covenants that, that give them a little bit longer runway, a little more breathing room, um, or we are seeing some some creative you know debt for equity swaps where companies are able to do that or, or using some different different types of debt, uh, different access to capital markets to um, to sort of stay afloat. But I mean, the fact that companies are using these different instruments or different um, techniques uh, at all shows the distress in the market. Um, and so I think that 
bankruptcies are, are, are certainly going to increase. And, um, but also we're just going to see this sort of increase in, in what I'll call more creative financing to the, to the extent the companies are able to, to execute mm -hmm. it. Uh, and Abi, this, you know, question about financing and refinancing and sort of the difficulty in achieving some of that stuff. Uh, what, what do you, what is the impact on that to the growth trajectory for, non-OPEC supply? And I guess, is this financing issue primarily a story about U.S. independence or is there a broader read-through? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, you know, to to the point I mentioned uh, earlier on some of the uncertainties on the supply and, and demand sides of the ledger, um, I mean, look, you know, some of these issues, they do take their, their time to kind of filter through um, in terms of the actual impact to supply, right? And so our base case is that, you know, this year, um, you know, you had, you know, pretty comfortably over 1.5 million barrels a day of, uh, of, of total liquid supply growth coming out of the U.S., of which, you know, roughly 1.2 will be oil. Um, and, and despite this, you know, this, this acceleration that we've seen in bankruptcies and this financial distress that we've already seen in the system, um, you know, we do think there's still, you know, some momentum uh, still left uh, to kind of continue to push a decent level of growth next year. Um, so our total supply uh, growth uh, forecast for next year is roughly a million barrels a day um, of total liquids. Of which a little bit under 700,000 barrels a day um, is oil, so it's roughly about 680,000. Now, obviously, that's a that's quite a material slowdown from from last year um, and, and and what we saw in in, in 2017 as well. Um, you know, but there is still you know some you know some thrust still left in the system. Um, you have to remember that you know for for some of the smaller guys and some of the more challenged parts of the space, um, there are offsets with with the acceleration going on with uh, with Chevron X. On um, and and some of the you know the better capitalized producers kind of continuing on with their plans. So um, so that's still providing a kind of a tailwind to the supply base. So again, you know next year if you have a million barrels a day of total liquids growth uh, from the U.S., um, you know that pretty much offsets your your total demand expectation globally, right? So um, and then you have on top of that Brazil and Guyana and Norway and some other sources coming online. So so the market is still you know pretty adequately supplied. Um, now, you know, but there are, you know, knock on effects, we think over a multi-year period. And so this is something to keep an eye on because it's going to be a little bit of a chicken and egg situation, uh, between prices and activity. Um, and to your question, uh, earlier, you know, in our view, you know, if you kind of hold this 55 to $60 range, like you've done for the most part this year. You know, we do think that the supply base can continue to grow. Um, but again, there is a further slowing down, even looking ahead to 2021. Um, our oil only uh, growth number for 2021 is down further from the 680 for next year, uh, down to about 440,000 barrels a day. Um, so there is continued slowing and there is this this kind of, you know, you know, the snowball effect of, uh, you know, of, of this financial distress and, and these bankruptcies uh, kind of continuing to be a headwind for, for the overall supply base. Um, so, you know, th that's kind of how we're thinking about it now. You know, certainly there's a lot of... Uh, um, risk to the downside um, if you have a, a price shock, uh, obviously, to the downside. Um, you know, for example, if you have a, you know, sort of a price move because of a macro or other shock um, like we had at the end of last year and, and you have WTI uh, down in the 40s and certainly down in the low 40s, uh, we think there's going to be 
you know, a, a much faster um, acceleration of, of the slowdown, uh, potentially even ending growth within a couple of years, um, if that's helpful. Yeah. Um, okay, let's let's turn to natural gas for a minute. Um, the world, you know, has a seemingly unlimited supply of, of gas. So prices feel like they're kind of perpetually low, at least at least in the US. Um, but which natural gas assets, uh, you know, have actually retained their value? And which companies are the best position to capitalize on that value? Sure. Um, so, you know, gas too, I mean, what's interesting is, you know, oil prices have held up fairly okay. But, um, you know, the, the severe weakness that we've seen in gas prices um, in the U.S. Uh, this year, you know, really is, is quite problematic for, for producers. And so, you know, and, and, and a large part of this has been, you know, this, this massive surge in associated gas production growth, you know, largely from the Permian, but from some of the other basins too, um, that has really sort of impacted some of the areas that were primarily focused on gas, like Appalachia, like the Haynesville, um, and a few other areas. So, um, you know, this is our view, which is that, look, you know, you're in a price environment now, which is, you know, really not sustainable at all for any gas-focused basin, um, and even a you know an extremely uh, large-scale one like Appalachia, which uh, Noah will dig into in a bit. Um, but you have a forward curve for for Henry Hub um, that's about two twenty-five, two thirty on average for twenty twenty. You know, that's a price that doesn't work for anyone um, who's focused on drilling for gas, you know, even if they are, you know, even if they have quite a few liquids that come with it. So, you know, we have a, you know, a, we bake in an assumption for a pretty rapid slowdown in Appalachia, you know, down to just about, you know, just a little over one BCF a day of growth um, in, in, in 2020, which is down from about three and a half BCF a day um, for next year. And the longer week prices sustain, um, you know, the, the more there is downside to that. Same thing in the Haynesville, uh, same thing in a couple of other kind of gas focused basins. And by the way, you know, we just talked about kind of a, an oil focused supply slowdown as well. As the Permian matures and slows down to some degree, um, as the Bakken slows down, as the Eagleford slows down, um, you know, that will have an impact on gas supply slowing down as well in those basins. So, you know, certainly this combination of low gas prices and, you know, OK oil prices is certainly having an impact sort of across the, um, you know, across the landscape. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Noah, let's let let's focus a bit more on the Appalachian Basin here. Uh, I mean, there it's source of abundant low cost supply, and yet many of the companies that are drilling these assets are struggling to stay afloat. I, I mean, Chevron is about to take a ten to eleven billion dollar write down, with a large portion of that tied to its Appalachian assets. Um, is there any reason to think some of these Appalachian producers could be M and A targets when? You know, one of the biggest theoretical buyers in Chevron can't seem to realize the full value of its own asset. Yeah, I mean, the, you rightly point out that that the Appalachian producers are really struggling. Um, you know, I think there are a couple things that are are specific both to that that basin and that set of companies, as well as to Chevron, um, that uh, that we need to keep in mind. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily think it it pushes the thesis one way or the other as to whether or not we would see more M and A in that area, but. Um, but I mean, first off, with the Appalachian companies, is uh, you know they're struggling with debt. Um, so if you look at say a peer group of you know maybe the the eight kind of primary Appalachian drillers um, outside of of the majors, and they've got like 
two and a half times uh, debt to earnings forecast for this year. Uh, but really, the entire group is sort of helped out by Cabot, which is below below one turn. Um, and, and you've got the likes of, say, you know, Antero is up above three, CNX is is at three, um, Range is up above three, uh, and and so you know they need to how to manage that debt, um, how to refinance it if they can, um, and, and pay it down is really kind of what they need to focus on um, servicing. You know that that mountain of debt is also a huge outlay, capital outlay for them, um, and so you know these companies are rightly looking at the the forward strip and saying that it doesn't really make a ton of sense for them to to grow. Um, it costs money to grow, and they're really not going to be rewarded for it either from a cash flow perspective, especially or or from investors that would much rather see them address debt. Um, now on Chevron side, I mean, I think. Yes, as you rightly point out, the company you know had, took a hard, sober look at its Appalachian position and said it, it didn't really make sense. Um, there are a couple things there that really are specific to Chevron, and that's that you know most of well, the majority of that position, vast majority of that position, came from um, from the Atlas uh, takeover. You know, somewhere around they paid about four point three billion dollars, maybe a little bit more, including the debt, um, to take over Atlas. And that position, you know, I guess first off, that comes with a cost. Obviously, um, you know, it's it's a higher cost than if they had gone out and and organically leased that. Um, so the book value on that was higher than than companies that that didn't go the M and A route. But also, too, it just was subpar. I mean, it's really not in the core of of kind of either the the northeast dry gas position that tends to make money or the southwest wet gas position. Um, and so it, it's sort of their Appalachian asset had an elevated cost on their books and, and was generally fringe. Um, and so I wouldn't necessarily condemn the basin just based off that write down. Um, on the other hand, you know, that does mean that, uh, I guess the other thing to point out too with Chevron is, is that they have this massive Permian position, you know, kind of far and away the best one in the industry that they're going to be leaning on for, for their oil growth. So they're going to be generating a lot of gas growth, just kind of, um, you know, incidentally, it's going to be associated gas growth. Um, but that said, you know, I do think it's it's uh, good to keep in mind that you know, as companies are talking about the future and the energy transition, the outlook for gas is generally brighter than the one for oil. Um, prices are pretty dismal now, but that doesn't mean necessarily that it doesn't make sense for um, for companies to lock up you know acreage in what is probably what is the lowest cost U.S. basin from a gas perspective. As long as it's not, you know, competing with with associated gas from a tight oil play, and so yeah, I think um, all of these companies, these uh, Appalachian companies, are trading uh, at quite low multiples compared to what they have historically. Um, but I do think, you know, if there's a limiting factor um, that that could kind of throw a wrench in the M and A thesis, it would be um, these high levels of debt. You know, if you're taking on a, a range or a, an Antero or someone like that that has a strong core position. Um, you are going to be taking on their debt as well. And so, you know, even if the equity might look cheap, the overall um, price, the overall cost to the acquirer is, is considerably higher. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, okay, so let's, let's travel a little further downstream um, with, and just talk about, I guess, first, since we're on gas, I mean, Abi, lots of LNG projects in the works in the U.S. and globally. Uh, how much are... You know how much are companies banking on LNG uh, as a kind of solution to some of these, uh, you know, oversupply woes? Yeah, no, it's a great question because I mean, you know, really, 
you know, LNG exports and to a smaller degree, you know, pipeline exports to, to Mexico, um, you know, are really kind of seen as the as the key sort of saving grace in, in rectifying this this oversupply situation. Right. And, you know, on, on one hand, it's helpful that prices are low and, you know, and, and, and even though global LNG prices are low, uh, it still keeps you know, U.S. LNG. Um, you know, reasonably competitive, um, especially for 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 firm contracts. But you know, one of the the key themes that that we are focused on looking in 2020 is um, you know is this question of um, you know these LNG projects that are that are in the pipeline. Um, how many of them can really sort of um, you know make it across the finish line, uh, whether it's early 2020 or over the next year or even the next couple of years? Um, and we think there's sort of two key risks for them to to, to kind of factor in, right? Uh, one is not only is the current global LNG market oversupplied, but but you have you know massively growing competition from Qatar, from Russia, from from other sources. And, you know, this is, you know, not just a three-year problem, but it's look it's looking like it might be a five to 10-year problem. Um, and, you know, if you kind of look at the step back and look at the, the global LNG picture, there's really not a whole lot of room for, you know, a lot more LNG projects coming from the U.S. Um, so certainly that's, that's one key problem that we think the industry is going to have to navigate. And the second one is this, is this issue of gas supply, right? If, you know, for now, gas supply is growing, uh, but we see it slowing quite a bit. Um, you know, on our numbers, gas supply growth um, this year is about a little over 8 BCF a day uh, from the U.S. We see that slowing down to 2 BCF a day next year. So that's, that's a pretty rapid drop off in growth. And if these, you know, sort of prices don't improve, um, even if oil prices kind of hang out in an okay re, uh, range, uh, we think gas supply growth is going to slow down even further. Um, so, you know, knowing where this gas is going to come from for these incremental projects is going to be a real sort of challenge to, uh, for the space to navigate um, going into the next decade. That's certainly one area that we're keeping a close eye on. Mm. Uh, and Noah, just quickly to wrap up here while we're uh, talking about downstream um, and kind of the role that uh, petrochemicals play in uh, corporate strategies. I guess let's let's just take Exxon as an example. Uh, what how how are they looking at uh, petchems uh, in in their broader strategy, and you know how, how much are, how much should they be relying on that? Well, I mean the petchem part of the equation is is huge for them. I mean, yes, they, you know, this this gas that's coming out of the ground um, alongside oil in the Permian Basin where Exxon has really ambitious growth plans, you know, certainly they're not counting on that necessarily for for their well-level economics maybe, but at the same point, um, being able to take that cheap feedstock and and do something that is value added with it is you know, that is the integrated model and that's where Exxon believes it has a, a strong advantage. Um, you know, I think that, you know, Abi, you've got some, I, some, some numbers around, I think, balances and things for, for supply demand on the, on the pet chem side. But, you know, we certainly see the risk maybe that, uh, that plastics demand doesn't grow as fast as the industry believes it will or is hoping that it will. Um, we're certainly seeing backlash against uh, single-use consumer plastics and, and really even kind of plastics more in general. Uh, in society, and, and we are seeing governments, either local or federal, take actions, um, you know, to to respond to that. And so, I think that um, this idea that companies should be uh, should be making huge investments today, necessarily, f- uh, you know, for a, a much more um, optimistic plastics outlook, maybe, um, you know, I would certainly say it's it it's worth taking a hard look at. I, I don't think those are necessarily slam dunks. 
Yeah, and just to add kind of two points to that real quick uh, that, that, that Noah referenced. Um, yeah, I mean, I think especially for the for the domestic pet cam industry there's you know there's you know there's the there's the supply question that they need to navigate if gas supply growth ends because of weak gas uh, gas prices and potentially weaker uh, oil prices um, that's going to mean NGL supply growth is also going to become pretty challenged um, and that's going to be a big question for for you know potential new projects that are that are trying to uh, reach FID uh, looking out to the mid 2020s um, and this question on you know on kind of the longer term uh, you know backlash on plastics I mean and Noah referenced it um, our number has already based on you know what's what's already you know in motion from policy and and other kind of you know consumer uh centric pushback there's already two million barrels a day of, of cumulative demand destruction that we see again that's a long over a long period of time um but over the next 15 to 20 years if you have kind of a you know a growing momentum behind this you know this anti-plastics and anti-pollution movement um certainly you could see that number grow um, and also brought forward, right? Which which puts uh, projects that are thinking about 2025 to 2030 uh, timeframe uh, to start up um, at risk of delay or or just kind of getting mothballed. So certainly something to to kind of keep an eye on um, as we turn to the next decade. All right. Well, uh, there's plenty more we could talk about, um, but I think we have to leave it there for now. So uh, thanks a lot, Abi. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Noah. Thanks. And thanks to everyone else for listening. You can read all of our news and views and subscribe to any of our services at energyintel.com. My name is Luke Johnson. Hope everyone has a good end of the year and nice holiday season, and we'll see you in 2020.